Maximizing legume cover crops for less nitrogen use. That is the topic for this week. It is something that we're all aware of, how legumes, one of their primary desired traits for cover cropping is their ability to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put it in the, put it in our fields essentially. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about how that's done today. I want to talk about more on the management side of it to maximize this effect. So um, I'm just assuming here that most people know and understand how the role of legumes play and how it actually works. So um, I just wanted to start out here by uh, just showing you a, a picture that I think really demonstrates the effect of a legume. Now, this was an a uh, situation here, what you see there is mainly sorghum sedan grass, and there's some sun hemp in there. If you look close, you'll see it. This was planted after an oilseed rape field that had a significant amount of uh, legacy or volunteer hairy vetch come through. And I actually left the hairy vetch grow and harvested it with the oilseed rape and separated the seeds out. And it kind of led to uh, another aspect of cover cropping that I'm going to talk about later, whereas this year I'm actually intentionally growing hairy vetch and, uh, and oilseed rape together and also uh, winter annual peas. Uh, that's another story for another day, but that's the background here. So you can see the greener parts was where the vetch was scattered throughout the field. This is basically showing up here in the sorghum sedan grass. So there's obviously a value there. Now, this was just shown because it was volunteer, so this isn't the way you would, you know, manage this. But it is a nice way to actually show you that, indeed, we can get uh, a nitrogen effect uh, with our legume cover crops. So to outline my talk today, I'm going to list these topics here, the main topics, and talk about each of them. Um, and this first one here is uh, my key management pit tips is to choose the best nitrogen-producing species. So we're going to talk about the species that seem to be the most popular for that. Also, the the whole plan of getting your cover crop legume planted as soon as possible. And then using winter hardier selections, that's sometimes a factor here to makes this work better. And then also, and this is again a management uh, plan, sometimes it's actually intentional, sometimes it is what it is, we get late, but uh, plant your cash crop as late as possible, and that's basically to maximize legume nitrogen production, giving it longer time to grow. Planting into the green legume or planting green is kind of related to that topic I just said. And then mix with other species. Um, why would we do that? Well, that's that's what I'm going to be talking about here uh, coming up. So another uh, two things here, finally, just to make note, I want to lay some groundwork here, is that it's my understanding that around the first bloom, of any given legume is typically where peak nitrogen production occurs. So if we're looking to manage this, once we see the first blooms, if you're thinking specifically about maximizing nitrogen production, 
we've pretty much achieved that and it's time to go plant if that's what you're trying to do as far as maximize that in that in that way now of course we all know that you have to compromise sometimes and sometimes it's a little later and you just want to get planted i understand that and you just have to just have to manage that into your operation the other thing here is highly variable but it's to know how much nitrogen is available to your cash crop so I'm going to spend just a little bit of time at the end talking about that and and we'll we'll just be able to help help us think through how that works so to choose the best nitrogen producing species now I, I listed what I'm uh, ex experienced with in this and I'm just going to list I've, I broke them up into three categories Let's start with the winter annual legumes is um, hairy vetch, crimson clover. Uh, I'm mentioning balanza clover and Austri Austrian winter peas. Uh, they seem to be the cream of the crop, if you will, for the winter annual species of legume cover crops for nitrogen production. So uh, that's the ones we want to focus on. Now, there's, there's obviously many, many other legume cover crops out there but these seem to produce the most nitrogen have been the most popular the cool season i'm going to list the cool season ones the ones that do not kill at the very first frost but on invariably will winter kill once the temperature gets down usually in the mid-teens or so uh would be fava bean and lupins uh, they're they're both a similar category as far as planting window, and they, they're both going to winter kill when we get a couple nights in the mid-teens. Uh, but these are very, very good in nitrogen production. Lupins have a long history of uh, working in the south and southern cotton rotation and so forth. You, you think back, you look back in the history uh, 70, 80 years ago, lupins were all over the south. Um so they're they're like tested and approved, you might say. Fava beans has shown to be very, very good at nitrogen production in the fall. But the problem is the seed size has been too big. And as a result of that, when I say too big, I meant I'm really meaning it's 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 almost cost prohibitive to plant them because it takes so many pounds per acre. And if you have any scale to your operation, to plant uh, 60, 80, 100 pounds of these per acre is uh, takes up a lot of space, and, and they've been somewhat expensive as well. But here recently, there has been a push toward identifying the smaller seeded fava beans so that we can be able to take care of that problem. And I'm going to wrap up my conversation today about some things I'm going to be planning uh, on doing here very shortly with fava beans and corn. So. Um, and then summer annuals, uh, sun hemp is probably the most popular legume cover crop. It's a summer annual that would be planted over the summer. Cowpeas might be a close second, and there could be a few other ones. But these are the ones that, as I know, have been uh, some of the most more popular ones for very good nitrogen production. And so... So moving on to our another point here is to plant that legume as soon as possible. And uh, this sometimes is not thought of, but it goes along with any cover cropping where you want to maximize the growing degree days you have in the fall or whenever that may be. Um, uh, but one one aspect here is interseeding when the corn is um, knee high, V4 or something like that. 
Uh, Crimson Clover in that mix does good. Harry Vetch has shown some promise. Actually, Cal Pease seems to be catching some attention here lately. So that's all in this category of trying to get these established as soon as possible. Now, when you're interceding, you're not necessarily trying to save nitrogen in that corn crop per se. Uh, that being said, there seems to be some synergies going on. There could be a fraction of that with a little nitrogen production, but they really don't produce much then. Probably any nitrogen production you get out of a legume that happens to be interseeded would be the succeeding crop later on. It will it'll really grow in the fall and then either winter kill or actually survive through the winter it would put the nitrogen on for the succeeding crop. So just want to make that clear in this situation here. Uh, the other aspect is using a short season cash crop like a corn or soybean uh, becoming more and more popular. We got some pretty good genetics out there. Again, not doing the whole farm this way, 10% of your acres, maybe a field or two. So you get your legume planted as soon as possible in the fall. Uh, of course, after small grain is an obvious situation. If that's so, uh, if you have small grains, or I know there's, a, I can say a little trend here toward more farmers actually getting small grains into their operation so they can get cover crops planted. And that's another topic for another day, but um, you could really, really get some serious nitrogen production. If you get your, your um, if you, if you have small grains in your rotation, it just opens up a wide window. And then finally, I've listed here, follow the combine. Um, legumes, there, there's a, there's an end date when you, when you can plant them in the fall. And if you can follow the combine, follow the harvester, whatever, uh, that's going to help you. Every day counts to be able to get that legume up and growing, uh, just either for winter survivability or just for, uh, enhanced growth later on next spring. So, um, just some suggestions there how to get your legumes planted earlier. The next section is using winter hardy selections, and there is active research going on right now with this, and there's some varieties trickling out here and there. Uh, we were talking before we went on here with the with the webinar that uh, there's work with Harry Vetch in particular, with the USDA is working with uh, Harry Vetch. They're working with uh, uh, winter peas and crimson clover. They have a nationwide research plots going out all around the nation selecting for winter hardiness. I know that um, uh, some of our members in this group, Jerry Hall and Brent Jones with uh, Grassland Oregon, have come out with their Balanza clovers. Their, their brand is Fixation, and uh, that is seemingly showing some greater winter hardiness than some of the other Balanza clovers that are out there. I would also mention, even though fava bean is not a – a winter annual legume, there's been some research in Washington State looking for and identifying more winter-hardy fava beans. And so in areas of the country, maybe a little further south where they could actually make it through the winter is something that uh, is being worked on. Uh, so while I'm on this topic, there is uh, a lot of variability between in the, in the context within species. Now, crimson clover might be a little bit of an exception because it seems like, um, the, the maybe I'm just going to guess 80% is the Dixie, uh, selection, which is, is, has been used for decades. 
there doesn't seem to be as many variants of crimson clover out there. Hairy vetch, there's a lot of them. And um, so the reason I mention this is, uh, again, is any cover crop aspect, knowing the specific selection you're dealing with is important. And sometimes you get lucky. Uh, there's times where people have been very disappointed where they bought a hairy vetch and it winter killed and, and they just don't have it there to give their production of nitrogen in the spring if they had counted on. Now, hairy vetch and, and winter peas, uh, crimson clover, any legume planted early, maybe after small grains, is subject to winter kill. If they grow more than 12 inches to 18 inches, they can winter kill, whereas if they're not quite that tall, they will survive the winter. So it's important to know that. Uh, they may provide up to 50 or 60 pounds of nitrogen up to that point, so it's not a loss at all. It's just that understanding that dynamic of a legume that planted early, and for the most part of the U.S., like after small grains, we'll just say the month of August here, they may be subject to winter kill, and you just have to understand that is and when you're uh, when you're planting them. Now the next one here is, is is hard for farmers to do, but it happens sometimes by not even by choice, and that I'm just going to say is plant your cash crops as late as possible. That sounds very, very counterproductive. That being said, uh, when we have a later spring, which we do sometimes, or a field that tends to be wetter, uh, if you could get your cover crop legume planted in there and you know that field just won't be planted early, let it, just let it grow. It's, it's okay. I mean, target, target later, naturally later planted fields. Or simply, if you have a lot to, uh, plant, target your last fields with your legumes, if you can do that. Allow them to grow as long as possible. So some of this isn't really uh, setting yourself up by failure, you know, by waiting longer than you really should. Sometimes it's just a matter of strategically managing. And this this is the type of thing here that kind of separates those from who are very successful in cover crops and those who may not be as successful, where you have to make the judgment call as the season progresses. But if you set yourself up and you're planning, of your planting, have those fields that have legumes in to go longer so you can maximize production. So I would also say, and I, I, I haven't had anybody disagree with me really on this, generally speaking, late planting is not much of a yield hit as it used to be. And I think a lot of that has to do with genetics, but also, you know, we've had a lot of variable weather conditions and there just wasn't uh, you know, the ability to plant everything early. So I, I'm just, you know, making the, the, the strategic decision here to plant, wait a, uh, for, for a field or two to plant it later. So a, another aspect or way to do this that may be less painful, if you will, is if you have conditions where the moisture is adequate, that you can plant into that green cover crop but do not terminate it right away. So planting into planting green, as we say, or planting into a green legume cover crop and either spraying it out right before it emerges or even if it happens to be uh, genetically uh, modified to, for Roundup Ready or Liberty Link, you can uh, wait till it comes up. Now, I will say on top of that, 
Roundup or glyphosate is not very effective on clovers and and vetches as as much. You have to use a pretty high rate. So I wouldn't recommend waiting for that. Now, of course, there's there's rolling options in here. It depends what type of roller you have that can also help mechanically control it. But delaying termination as late as possible is a strategy. Now, there's one big caveat in this, and that is if the weather is dry and getting dry and no rain in sight, you, you don't want to wait till the last minute because you're going to lose moisture. And unless you have good irrigation supply, uh, not a good idea. So here's, again, where management needs to come into play is how long you can let your cover crop grow. Now, one of the last uh, points I have here before I give you some examples is mixing it with other species, mixing a legume with other species. And and you may say, well, my, I might lose some of my nitrogen because if I mix it with a cereal rye or triticale, that's going to take it up. Well, yeah, that is true. But there's also other benefits that like a standing erect uh, grass type will, will do here where it helps the hairy vetch in particular, and so want clover, crimson clover to trellis up, to climb up those uh, stalks. And that allows them to actually grow better. And and I like to say this is that synergistic cover crop math where one plus one equals three. So um, there is a, a good reason sometimes to plant a grass-type species, and you don't have to put much. I mean – 10, 15, or 20 pounds per the per acre, like a cereal rye, will do a really good job at holding up the uh, the legumes in there. So uh, peas is another example of that it keeps them off the ground from like almost smothering themselves and so forth. So uh, mixing a little grass species in there is is not a bad idea. Uh, then you do have to consider what your nitrogen rates are and everything. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but. So I wanted to show you uh, a couple of examples here of setting yourself up using legumes. And uh, several years ago, I planted various species of cover crops and some mixtures that were legumes compared to a control, which was no cover crop. So in, in doing that, I also used a zero nitrogen so I could really see the effects of the cover. And it happened to be a, a very, one of our drier years in recent memory, so uh, we did not get very good yields. But where I have it circled there on the left, you'll see that the control plot, I added 75 pounds of nitrogen at planting. And this was just to be fair, I felt, because I wanted to show the effects of legume cover crops. We know legumes provide nitrogen. And I'm just thinking, well, they at least provide 75 pounds, maybe more. But what I didn't expect was how much more the yield and yield was with zero nitrogen uh, in in legumes compared to where I just used straight up nitrogen fertilizer. So, but the other plots there had 120 pounds of nitrogen added at a side rest time. And it's kind of fascinating, but those bars, they all inch up, and there's more. There's there's um, actually 23 bushels more increase, which which is what we would expect. Uh, again, a dry year, so, so not very impressive yields. But the fact that the legume cover crop apparently did more than just uh, provide nitrogen. And I think that aspect needs to be included in this discussion. Because when 
you just take the nitrogen value that a legume cover crop can give, well, that's one thing, but I think there's other elements that just because we'll say it's a cover crop or, or the biological effect. Now, in that whole field, when I threw all my, uh, all my plots together, we actually got a 32 bushel increase where we use cover crops versus a control with no cover. Now, I want to say that behind every research data, there's always a story. And I've done thousands of plots here in my farm. And believe me, I struggle to believe almost anybody's data because I understand how it can be manipulated to make it say what you want to say. So I don't want to get everybody spooked here by everyone's data. But I always try to tell the story if there's one to tell. Um, this particular experiment and this year was was really designed uh, – no, I shouldn't say it that way. It turned out to really favor the cover crops. We had a wet spring, and then it turned very dry, as I said. So the cover crops grew well because it was a wet spring. And then they provided a nice ground cover that kept the soil cooler early on which was a benefit, and then the little bit of rain we got later, it was able to capture and hold it. So I'm telling you that just to give you the whole story, but that's very impressive here what we did. And when you see that kind of yield increase, that paid for several years of cover crop seed, if you're just going to look at, look at it that way. So impressive data. It won't happen every time. So that's that's the reason I want to say that. When you see very, very good data like this, this won't happen every time, but it did happen. And that's the point I want to make, and it is very good data, and it is what you can expect on some occasions. Uh, really worked out nice that year. Uh, this was uh, last year uh, planting into, as you can see there, crimson clover, and there's some hairy vetch. And we were late last year. Uh, this was around the third week of May, so everything was out in full bloom. And uh, planted that field there. It was actually 15-inch corn. I grew it for a neighbor for silage. And uh, so we weighed it off the field, 27 tons of silage per acre. And um, that you know, that 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 includes the the one end of the field is heavy deer damage. I'll just have to say that. But only 80 pounds of nitrogen applied to that crop. Um, so I I you know there's the effect that cover crops can do. And so you know if you wouldn't have any cover crop here, you'd be looking at 180 200 pounds of nitrogen applied. So so there we saved 120 pounds of nitrogen. We'll say. Uh, in, in that situation. Again, this is not research here. This is just, I've become pretty comfortable in what I do in my farm, on my farm, because of the research I've done, which I'm going to talk about later on. You need to do your own research, uh, to, to find out where things play out in your farm. But this is based on my experience. I'm able to reduce nitrogen somewhat dramatically sometimes. Um, not not so much when we're just growing uh, corn after Sierra triticale. That's different. But today we're talking about legumes is where we really can save on nitrogen. Here's another case where uh, I set this field up. It was wheat, so I had plenty of time to grow my cover crops. It was set up to plant uh, corn the next year. So you look at that list, a lot of uh, nitrogen-producing crops in there. Uh, I was playing around with a few things that I no longer use, but this was a couple years ago. Uh, but a 12-way mix, 
set up to do corn. And, and um, this is where I'm talking about how mixes and synergy help. There's a lot of things work together there. And this was fairly impressive uh, for me. Uh, that year, 190 bushels of corn with no nitrogen applied. Uh, now, I've had people say, yeah, you had a nitrogen applied because you grew cover crops. Okay, well, I mean, I was, there's no extra nitrogen, no synthetic nitrogen applied to this field, to that, to those plots there. And this is all replicated, so it's good data. Uh, but there you can see adding 60 units of nitrogen actually did, did, uh, did give us our highest yield. But boy, I tell you what, it, it's, Depending on the price of corn nowadays, I don't know if it's even worth putting any nitrogen on that field. Now, again, you have to understand, this was set up perfectly to do this. It doesn't happen all the time. I can't do this every year. I don't plant that many small grains that I can set myself up for this. Okay, so, but it is possible, and that's the point here. You want to work this in as many places as possible to be able to grow your own nitrogen and um, and I'll just reiterate again, it's more than just nitrogen. It's it's the effect that you get, the biological effect you get by what all these cover crops working together. But again, setting myself up here using uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of legumes in my my cover crop to do that. Just another picture here. What what you couldn't see in that last picture is. I was embarrassed to show people that field because my residue was completely gone. There was like zero residue left. And that's, I'm, I was, in, in this case, I was kind of like a victim of my own success. There, there's so many earthworms. They ate everything up. And the problem was, and if you would go back and look at that slide, a lot of the species that I grew in there were low carbon to nitrogen ratios. So they disappeared very quickly. So I want to show you this picture here. I learned that I need to add to my mix some higher carbon type uh, crops to keep to cover crops to keep my soil covered because that's my goal. I don't want to see my soil very often. Okay, so adding a sorghum sudan and adding more sunflowers and and things like that uh, is is part of that. Now, if you look closely there in the middle of the bottom, you'll see a carcass of a radish left over. So that collected some nitrogen gave it. But here's a classic example. And, and by the way, there was legumes in this mix here. This is a different different field, different year, but no no nitrogen applied until this stage right here where you see it. And you're able to do that if you're able to set yourself upright. And legumes are a big part of that to make that work. And so that's just another example of the potential of what you can do. Now I put this uh, next slide in here that you can. This is kind of a maybe a narrow niche, but I grow pumpkins and squash, and uh, I really like my triticale hairy vetch um, mix that I plant to set myself up to no-till into this. What happens is the hairy vetch starts growing and it will pull down the cereal rye just because of the weight of it and because I'm leaving it grow, we don't plant our squash till around the 1st of June. So the hairy vetch gets fully mature, and if you have a rain or a windstorm come through, it'll blow it down. So here's a case where I rolled it in order to get the stems basically facing in a direction I'm going to plant. But at the stage here, right, this would have been rolled just before any blooms were on the, um, on the hairy vetch. 
and it pretty much terminated the rye. So there is no herbicide been applied to the to the picture right here, what you see in the main picture. But the vetch grew out of that. And I really love this because it gave me, I feel, it gives me a little more nitrogen, a couple more pounds of nitrogen until I'm ready to plant and when I finally terminate that. So, again, this is a strategy here that works for my situation of doing no-till vegetables, in this case squash, where I'm rolling it down early, too early to actually kill the hairy vetch with the roller, but it, it pretty much took out the cereal rye, as you can see, allowing that legume to grow a little more to provide me for with some more nitrogen. So I, uh, that's, I know it's a specific niche, but um, just something that uh, – an idea I wanted to share out there you might be able to use somewhere. So maybe the, the crux of the matter here of our whole topic today is how much less nitrogen can I use? Uh, and, and I wish I could give you a prescription, but I can't. There are so many variables in this. And um, it's the type of legume, the maturity of it, so many variables go in there. You can't make recommendations that are going to hold true every year. So that's why you need to do your own research. And it's not that hard these days with our um, – GPS guidance, it's not hard to put out some replication in our planters. It's not hard with the yield monitor. If you have field length fields, a yield monitor is decent. It'll at least tell you a little bit. It's not scientific probably, but it'll tell you a little bit. So, But I did want to give a, a little scenario here for corn. Let's just say we have a good stand of hairy vetch. That's, we're just going to talk about a straight stand of hairy vetch, one of the top nitrogen producers there are. And if we let it grow till first bloom, Let's say this may be the last field we plant. Probably only need 40 to 60 pounds for optimal yield. Now, I'm just going to pause a little bit and say that I know I could probably count a, a dozen or so stories from farmers I've heard who, under good conditions, have used zero nitrogen uh, and, and were happy with the results after a good stand of hairy vetch. And this is really what the organic uh, farmers would do with the no-till organic is this is a, a classic example of what you do with that. But I'm just saying 40 to 50 pounds for the optimal yield. And basically that would be at a side dress right before the corn takes up the majority of its nitrogen going from V4 up to tassel. Over that time, there's generally not enough nitrogen to fully maximize the corn growth at that time. So that's when you would put it on. That's when you'd time it. So when you do that, you're potentially saving at least 150 pounds of less nitrogen than maybe you typically do with no cover. And I would just say that there's more, that's more than enough to pay for the total cost of the cover crop seed and the cost of doing it and everything. Uh, right now, the cost of nitrogen is, I would have, think we'd have to agree is, is reasonable. It's not sky high. Will that ever happen? I don't know. We live in a volatile world and Things could happen politically or even, you know, sometimes uh, hurricanes will come through and, and, and hurt uh, the, the production of nitrogen and stuff like that. There's going to be a little blip on that. But let's be prepared. If the price goes up, there may not be enough legume cover crop seeds to meet the demand because farmers are primed like never before to use cover crops. And uh, if the price of nitrogen goes up 25%, I would predict 
that there'll be a run on legume seed. Uh, it just, I just think that could occur. Not saying that for doom and gloom or to scare anybody, just saying that why not play around with this concept a little bit so you're, you're prepared if the need ever arises in that. So. Well, I want to uh, finalize uh, this presentation with an idea that I'm planning, actually just as we speak here almost, planning to do. And I saw some, a couple different research studies came out indicating that there is a, a fairly good, I'm even going to call it a synergistic effect between fava beans and corn. Uh, I know that hairy vetch and corn, there it just, there's something about you plant hairy vetch, corn just does extremely well. I think it's more than just nitrogen production. So what I am planning on doing is to plant fava beans with corn. And I'm going to do a couple different ways and uh, of this. The one is on my 15-inch planter, I am going to plant alternating rows of fava beans and corn. And see how that works out. Now, this is corn for grain. It's the intention here. So to see if those fava beans will give that corn some kick or some extra nitrogen later on. And um, I haven't uh, done it yet. We're setting up actually the picture there. My son just sent that to me as I was preparing this morning because we just got a tote of small seeded fava beans. From uh, from Derek Axton, who's one of our group members here, just got those seeds yesterday. So there you can see some fairly small seeded fava beans, around 1,500 seeds per pound. Uh, and I think our, it's going to work on my corn plate. We may use it on a soybean plate, um, but that's anyway. I just wanted to show you uh, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And the other more radical idea is to actually plant corn with a drill and mix in fava beans so that they're scattered a little bit more evenly. And I'm going to try to use no residual herbicides because obviously uh, I don't I don't actually really know what herbicide that the fava beans could grow out of. Uh, but I do have a nice cover crop growing there. I do plan to wait about a week yet. I want my cover crop to go bigger. But this is one of those ideas that I'm going to try. Uh, I think there's a decent chance it's going to work. I don't know uh, how much additional N might be needed. Uh, if we have enough seed, we may have enough plots to try different nitrogen rates with it. But nonetheless, something I'm going to try, I think there's something there between these fava beans and uh, and corn. The, the fava beans, you can see in that picture, they're an erect-type plant. They grow straight up. And, uh, and so I think they'll grow well with the corn but won't compete because – uh, they're not going to get over a couple feet tall. So we'll see how it works. I might be crazy, but I've been called that before. And, yes, not everything does work. Uh, but you don't know if you don't try. So uh, that's, 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 what's, that's what we're fixing to do uh, next week. So I'll, uh, that's my presentation for this morning. I'm sure you might have some questions uh, just put up there. Next week I'm going to talk about soil health tests. We've all heard about them. There's various ones out there. Uh, how do you, how should we use them? That's the angle I'm going to take on this. I have done quite a bit of work with some of them. And uh, so I'm going to talk about that next week. Um, but I'm going to open uh, microphones up for everyone here. So you can either uh, ask the question or type in the chat. 
let's uh, let's just start out here by focusing on our topic today, which was about the cover crops uh, with uh, legume cover crops. So, who has a question or a comment on our on our topic today about using legume cover crops for less nitrogen use? Dan or Steve, it's yeah. Don. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that list of legumes that you were talking about, you said you mentioned you didn't use some of them. Which ones don't you use? The one, the, oh, the 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 one with um, I might just go back here uh, and look at that quick. This one here, I, I should have clarified that lay, it wasn't all legumes. I haven't used fenugreek lately. I haven't used calendula. Calendula is like a flower almost. It's pretty, it's really cool looking. Um, but I haven't used that one. There's, I have a little renewed interest in fenugreek. I want to maybe try to get some seed. I haven't used common veg uh, lately. So yeah. there, those are the main ones well, that, I, that I'm not using. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, does that answer your question, Don? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just wondering. I don't know a lot about Greek and uh, uh, those others anyway. So I just wanted to check. Right, and I'm not actually. Someone else might know on here. Greek, I'm, I'm not even sure if that's a legume or not. Uh, see, they're not all legumes on that list, but I set myself up there for for corn soil as I carry. So the the sweet blue is a sweet blue lupin, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's sweet blue lupin. Yeah, it should be in the same line there. But yeah, yeah. Any other questions uh, other people have? Steve, this yeah. is Stephanie. Go ahead, Stephanie. Um, one of the things you were talking about kind of early on in your discussion was uh, trying to, you know, pick a field, take mm-hmm. your wetter field, your later, later planting fields, and, and plant the clovers there, and then, you know, get, get to those fields last. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked how you talked about making that judgment call as the season progresses. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one of the things that I was just thinking about is in a lot of the operations that we the the, the farmers that we're working with when mm-hmm. when it's fit to plant mm-hmm. it seems like some of these people can be done planting their corn in like 5 days right you know you know what i'm saying it I moves know. so fast I know. that you know, thinking about a a field that's going to be corn and you have your clover there and it's like your your later planted field mm-hmm. how much of a difference can 5 days make do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? And or should someone walk away, go plant soybeans, and come back to that field later? I just that does that window just doesn't feel very wide to me to make yeah. a significant difference. Yeah. Now it it is a I'm not sure what word to use. I wanted to say a conundrum, but uh, it might not be the correct word. It does depend what your objectives and your goals are too. I think you have to think about that and and so forth because it is risky to wait and. I would just say this, that if the price of nitrogen will increase, there might be an incentive to wait a little longer to more, grow more of your own. That could factor into it. I mean, right now it's relatively, I'm not going to say cheap, but it's, it's a, a fair price. I think farmers would agree. And, you know, we, we, you know, what happens if you run into four weeks of weather that you waited two days or three days or five days, then you get four weeks of bad weather. That's, that's a problem. Now, I will say that there's another little angle to this that should be mentioned is the further you get into a soil health system and the further your fields mature on a soil health from a soil health perspective, you earn the right, I like to say, to have more options. In other words, an inch of rain won't keep you out of your field two days. You might be able to get back in in a day. 
So the longer you're into this system, the more advantages you have to make these kind of judgment calls. But I am not going to try to talk a farmer out of waiting uh, 10 days to let his cover crop grow more if conditions are perfect and there's rain moving in. I, I just wouldn't want to do that. I understand that. But, but I think it's more, you know, you're going to have to decide, do you want to roll the dice or not? And, and that's, that's, um, the thing of it is, is you could also argue some of the other sides. Do, do you know when the heat wave's going to happen this summer? And we don't. So maybe waiting two weeks sometimes has proved to be beneficial because the, the, the heat wave hit at, a, at the time your early corn was pollinating and your later corn did better. So those are the kind of things you're going to have to do to take the risk. So, you know, for me personally, I'm very comfortable in waiting uh, if, I, if I feel I want to, partly because I have, um, I like to say, earned the right with my soil to be able to plant in what would have been adverse conditions now no longer are as much. So a little long-winded answer there, Stephanie. I don't know. Does that, am I getting that what you're asking? Is that helpful? I do. I think you, I think you kind of hit it. Like you said, you're, you're, um, you're really focusing on not putting all your eggs in one yeah. basket. You're spreading out your risk. Uh, and I think it's an interesting perspective that, you know, that we have to try to, to get out there. Cause like I said, I mean, we've had 10 nice days now and you talk to people and they're done planting. Yep. Uh, and 10 nice days and they, you're, they're getting all the, everything done. And, yeah. and so then all of a sudden that idea of spreading that window out or mm-hmm. coming back later, that's flown out that window mm-hmm. unless you said you mm-hmm. come back and you say this is my goal i right. that's my objective for this field and and yeah. it's a it has to be a very um mm-hmm. that plan has to be well thought out in your brain and then like you also said be willing to jump ship if you have to go a different mm-hmm. direction for some right. reason i'll yeah. just i'll just tell you personally i have not planted corn yet we're going to start tomorrow uh there's corn planted all around me um, it was a late year. Yeah. It was a late year. Um, like everywhere else, I'm letting my peri vets and crimson clover and stuff grow a little bit more. Granted, I don't, corn is not my main cash crops. I want, want everybody to know that, uh, just for, in all fairness and all candor. But that being said, I'm, I'm waiting uh, a little bit longer here. Uh, and then I don't intend to spread or roll it until I have to. And I'm not sure when that's going to be. I'll just give you a case in point. Our soil conditions, like right now today, are like almost perfect. Um, I'll just say tomorrow it's going to be perfect. Uh, we had some rain over the weekend and, and, and so forth. Tomorrow it'll be perfect. There's a chance of showers on Thursday. And if if we get, let's just say we get a half inch of rain on Thursday, I will let that cover crop grow until just before the corn spikes through. Okay? If we get nothing and there's no rain in the forecast for a week. I'm going to be spraying probably right after, right after, um, like, like I'll say Friday morning. So that's just the way I think. That's how I do it, um, in, in, in my situation. So, um, go ahead. Do you have a follow up or someone else? Right. Yeah. Steve, this yes, Dan. Yes. Hey, uh, one of the other balancing acts that one needs to do here is what is your, so in moisture like and what is the forecast? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. I know we've, I mean, that's, that's just part of the multiple factors that need, yeah. one needs to consider. 
Right. Yeah, that that is very, very, very key. I just kind of gave that example here of uh, of my situation. And if there's no rain in sight, it's time to terminate. Uh, that's generally what I say. Uh, anything beyond that, you're risking maybe not even getting your cover, excuse me, your cash crop to germinate. And as great as cover crops are, I can't afford that. Uh, I can't afford that risk. So they've already done a lot for me. And so, you know, it comes down to uh, management, but also you know, risk. Farmers are used to risk. Some of it we just, we just do. It's part of our job. Uh, in, 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 you know, how, how early do you start planting again after you get a rainstorm because there might be more rain coming? I mean, it's a risk. Uh, a lot of decisions we make are risky. So, you just kind of have to throw it in that same mindset there of doing something. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong and it had nothing to do with what you did. It's just that the way it played out. So uh, good point. Uh, Lu- Luis from Spain uh, just asked here, how do you terminate hairy vetch that regrows after the rolled rye? And that's, I'm assuming, Luis, that's in response to that picture. For me, I have sometimes come back and rolled the second time, or I just throw in a little gramoxone when I'm when I'm spraying after I plant. So either with a herbicide or a second rolling. So I've I've done that. I've done both ways. It really does depend on the situation. If I see a few little other weeds trying to grow and I know I need to take care of them, I'll just spray it out. I won't bother rolling again. So pretty simple response on that either roll or or just spray it out with the herbicide i see uh, uh risa is on from uh grassland oregon i don't know risa if you can i wouldn't mind hearing some of your perspective uh if you could here on uh on some of our discussion today because i know you're involved with legume cover crops are you able to get on risa or not okay yeah did you hear my question go ahead risa did you have a specific well, yeah, I just I ask I ask uh, I ask if you have any comments on this topic here, knowing that you've been working with, you know, legume cover crops and so forth, and selecting different species and so forth. Uh, yeah, I just just wanted to give you an opportunity to any any uh, comments that you would like to or questions or whatever. Oh, I I just appreciate listening to your your okay. on the farm experiences. I really liked your slides over there, but. Um the, the bumps you're getting and, and how it how it works in a practical situation. Right. I mean, we're continuing to breed for the cold tolerance and for right. the biomass and the nitrogen right. contribution. But, um, yeah, varieties matter is all I would say. And, right. and you hit that topic really well. Right. Well, I, I would uh, – uh, and I appreciate you being part of this group because uh, most of the time farmers or consultants or the rest of us that are in education do not get to uh, – be able to communicate with someone who's actually behind the scenes, so to speak, what, what you guys are doing. So I, I certainly do appreciate what all you guys are doing out there. Well, thanks, Steve. Yeah. We, we feel the same about you. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> it uh, takes a village. <laughs> yeah, right. Other questions about this topic, um, about nitrogen production? I, I had something. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, um, just, a, just a thought with the varieties and mm-hmm. and everything. Like I know, I just thinking of like how in crops, like with soybeans, how vastly different they are in in how long they take to mature. Sure. Like how, and maybe is that what Risa? I don't know you too well. Is that you're working on cover crop uh, or on breeding cover crops or breeding these type of yes. these type of yes. crops? Yeah. We're doing breeding on the the cover crop side of things. 
Okay. Um, yeah. And we're, you know, just, we just hosted a cover crop event last week here in Oregon and had uh, one of our speakers was uh, Chris Reberg Horton, who was talking about the allelopathy and cereal rye, which is not a species we, we, we are working on currently, but, um, and Anita Dilly had sent some information. There was over a thousand percent difference in the Deboa levels between 12 different varieties in a study that was done back in the late nineties. So, mm-hmm. you know, Varieties aren't just mattering today. They've mattered for a long, long time. In what levels? The, it's the chemical that makes, um, the allelopathy in, in, uh, cereal rye that makes it, gives it that weed suppression. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And that's a, but yeah, that's so a huge saying, yeah, the variety makes a huge just, difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we were at the PMC and you could tell the difference between, say, the Balanza varieties. Mm-hmm. You know, we've bred ours for cold tolerance and for biomass and, I mean, it was when you put your eyes on the difference in the same situation, it, you can tell there are, there are stark differences. And having the right tool in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. knowing what your goals are, which is what Steve is mm-hmm. is so very good at, is you know being able to plug those right tools in, um, and then telling you how to apply them in a in a full production situation mm-hmm. is critically important for the success. Maybe I'll um, I'll send you an email after this if I could get some of that information. Or see sure. any of it I can get. Like I'm, I'm up in Alberta. Um, okay. So and I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to soak up as much information on this as I can. So because yeah. I'd love to see right. more of this type of stuff here. Yeah. Happy to share. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Well, that's what this group's all about. Uh, to share, yeah. share with one another, and uh, none, none of us have all the answers. Uh, I certainly don't. And all of us need to stay learning and stay curious and everything. And and I'll, I'll just say follow, you know, just to follow up that uh, there's going to be a second cover crop breeders conference uh, in Oklahoma here in June. I'm not sure, Risa, if you're going to that or not, but I'm planning on going again. And uh, so I just put it out there that there is stuff that's happening more than you may realize behind the scenes, uh, so to speak. So I really, I, as I look at the, as I get, look at the, as a, from a, I'll say it, a 30,000 foot perspective here with cover crops, we're just in kindergarten. We really are just starting out with understanding and developing, I should say, and designing species. Think of all the billions of dollars that's been put into corn and soybeans breeding. Look how far we've come uh, in just, I'll say, 50 years. It's astounding. Now with the technology we have and what we know, we're just starting in cover crops. We could apply all that what we know to the cover crops now that they're starting to have legitimacy. It just is exciting to me, you know, what the future is going to bring. Now it makes it a little more complex for the novice, but it'll sort out. Um, just if, if you would just come on the scene today and, uh, and want to be a, a corn farmer and you, you just planted sugar cane before it would take a little while to catch up. We'll catch up. So I think it's just really. Awesome. I'll just say a little bit more. I was I was talking about the soybeans there. Yeah. I uh, just thinking of the like. You know, I think you're you're saying the same thing. Like with soybeans, um, they're being grown here in Alberta, mm. and there's now now actually triple zero maturity. Oh really? Beans. Wow. Yeah. Didn't and um, and last like we've grown them for a few years on one of the farms that I work with, mm. um, and they were planted May 10th last year, and I was just thinking of that flowering date mm. by the end of June. They were flowering. Wow. And by the end of August, they, um, 
they've been pretty consistent. About the third week of August, I start seeing just the very early signs of maturity. Okay. And by the fourth week in August, they're starting to yellow. And oh. by second week of September, they're ready to harvest. And, and it's mm-hmm. it's amazing, you know, and, and to see you, that. And what kind of yields are you getting out of that? You know? Well, and this is on irrigation. Okay, well. We, this, mm-hmm. is dry, this is dry land. Right. It's, it's a very dry area. Yep. So on irrigation, like, there, it was um, – the combine, they didn't they didn't keep really good records. But mm-hmm. uh, okay. I think it was anywhere from 55 to 60 That's bushels. That's pretty, pretty impressive. And, you know, if you th- – well, see, I grew, I grew up in Ontario, in okay. southern Ontario. Right. I grew up with soybeans, and right. I guess just to think of yeah. how much yeah. progress has been made to be able to make soybeans grow here, yeah. it's it's amazing. That's so, great. what can be done with these cover crops, like what you're saying? Yeah. And, you know, in twenty, thirty years, just mm-hmm. learning, getting the right variety for the right yeah. area, yep. there's a lot that can be done. Yep. Well, good. So, uh, go ahead, Dan. So, yeah, I have a comment and. Uh, Interested in feedback. We did a, a variety plot in a couple of different locations this year, and you know, it followed the what would you expect on our legumes as far as you know. September one was okay. great. September fifteenth, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, yeah. a little, little less. Mm-hmm. October one, which is outside the planting window in this zone, it was. September 15th is kind of the cutoff date mm-hmm. and it, it got smoked. Yep. It, it was okay. nothing left. We give out cover uh, seeding dates, but too many farmers blowing, you know, they don't, mm-hmm. oh, maybe it'd be a warmer than normal. Yeah. Well, this was colder than normal. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, it's, it's, we don't talk much about growing degree days for the covers. I'm just wondering if, yeah. if this would something that folks would relate to because because it was if, if I looked at the average growing degree days for the one plot September 15th versus October one. Yep, it was half the growing degree days. Well, you probably heard me say this before. One day in September is worth over a week in October, and that may be even short sighted. But I, I, I'm with you, Dan. I have seen some research. Uh, they did it in Virginia on growing degree days and the biomass production of about 12 different cover crops. I have that chart on that. And it was interesting to see, and I think that's the kind of thing that will help us better manage some of these species. Um, I referenced early on in this talk about seeing a winter pea, or I should say, I shouldn't call it a winter pea, a pea that was 18 inches high and one that was four four inches high, planted in the middle of September in Beltsville, right outside of Washington, D.C. So I don't know, it might be zone seven there, I'm thinking, um, or so. And in the middle of of November, so you had an 18-inch high pea and you had a four-inch high pea planted the same day, two different different selections. And the thinking was that 18-inch one will probably winter kill, and the four-inch one undoubtedly survived the winter. Now, I didn't follow up to know what happened. But the point I'm trying to make is if you want to get some quick cover on in the fall, you want to get that pea that puts 18 inches of growth on. That's what you want. If you want it to survive the winter, you want the, the four-inch one that's going to survive the winter and be there for the spring. And I think these are the type of, of – I'm going to call them subtle 
maybe they're not too subtle, but management ideas that you need to understand to be able to maximize this, and we equate it to our topic today of less nitrogen use. Hey, our time's about up here. Um, I would entertain one more question about any cover crop question you might have. Is there any one more question for today or comment? Hey, anybody? Steve, it's Don. Hey, Don. Could you, is, that, is that information on that research you just mentioned, Virginia, available that you could send out? I will – just to make a note of it. I'll try to find my PowerPoint slide. It's been a while since I had it. Uh, I could just, I could post it on Facebook. I can probably put it in my email that comes out too. Growing degree days. Yeah. Hey, Steve, thank mm-hmm. you for your article that you wrote last week or two weeks ago. That was really good. Which one? The one that, uh, your response to the oh. people frustrated with cover crafts. Okay. Well, you're welcome. Um, I I think it really was articulate and it really stated the things that we need to think about as planners and other people working with farmers, just trying cover crops for the first time. There's not, there's not a secret recipe. There's not anything magical. All of these things just start really keep thinking about all of these things. And and at first it seems like a lot to think about, but uh, you highlighted the, you know, the seeding dates, just like Dan did. I mean, we have these seeding dates for a reason. Um, focusing on trying to have the best yep. possible success under all conditions. So oh, it was thanks. really good. I, I just really appreciated that article. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. I, I, that was one where I guess you'd say the hair raised up in the back of my neck. <laughs> I'm guessing you had to, like, type and then you would delete and try to find I, a nicer way to say I, things I, I numerous did, times. I, that's exactly right. I did turn it down. But, <laughs> no, it, but hey, it was, it was a great opportunity, I thought, to to respond, and uh, so I appreciate your comments uh, on that. So just just one comment, Stephanie. Uh, yeah. Part of the issue is folks are getting cost share dollars or contracts as they have to plant a legume, so they plant it after harvest, and it's too late. Hmm. It's, and that's not just Indiana. This is this yeah. is all over Iowa, Illinois, other states. But it's it's. Part of that planning process is how are you going to get planted on time? Yeah. Well, we, we talked about yeah. some of the ideas here today, and, and yeah. I mentioned some of that response, too, that uh, there are a few different ways, but that takes planning, and that's why, again, you plan a year in advance sometimes to pull this stuff off. So I absolutely agree with that there. This is David, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I'm talking to my growers about, you know, looking in the future, planting their cover crops, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking at seeding soybeans before corn. Mm-hmm. And where we're typically a 4.0 to 4.3 maturity, I'm mm-hmm. looking at a 3.7 to start yep. with. Yep. That way I can be in there and get that bean off, start my cover crop early that's going into corn so I yep. make sure I've got that legume and everything growing yep. or have enough growing degree days yep. to uh, be well established for winter. Yep, you're exactly right, David. And uh, it doesn't—you don't have to do the whole farm in three seven beans in your area. Just a field or two to get them started. But it makes a lot of sense beyond just strategic cover crop management. I mean, you never know what the weather's going to give you. It gets, spreads out your risk. You can start at harvesting, you know, and you don't have like you know a thousand acres that's ready at once and all that. So it's a it's a it's a very simple strategy to plan a shorter season cash crop to get a cover crop started in a timely manner. That separates out those who are successful from those who planted a cover crop, but eh, I didn't, it didn't do much for me. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, One last chance. Anybody else have anything to say? Hey, well, thank you. I appreciate your participation. Go, go ahead. This is Aaron Hurd. I was going to ask, did you see, did you see that in Iowa, they're uh, able to offer an RMA 
variants. Yes. For termination timelines. That's a new. Oh, oh, that, okay. 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 I'm sorry. I didn't know where you were going with that. Uh, was that, I think I, that just came out, what, in the last day or two or three, right? Yeah. Yeah. You really hear very current. So. Yeah, that's right. That, that was. Gonna keep your eyes on that. I think other states yeah. will probably move in that direction yeah. if possible. Well, I can certainly appreciate that there's some, uh, Flexibility there. That that was that's that's good. I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron. So, yeah, I think I think that's just a good example there of how cover crops, again, just like cash crops, there's variability that occurs because of weather, and you just have to go with that. You just have to go with that flexibility. In 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 uh, in that's just part of the success. It's not a cookie cutter approach. So. Well, hey, thanks everybody. Appreciate your um, appreciate your attention and your support and everything. And uh, just want to remind you, we got like over fifty now of these webinars that that you can go back and look at and and review or whatever when you have a chance. And uh, wouldn't mind seeing you guys on Facebook uh, when you can. And meantime, have a good week. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Bye. Oh.